0: Turn in your Bibles to Luke 15. The thing about this matter of missions, you need to preach the whole Bible. And, and I'm, a bit, I'm a little frustrated. I want to preach on the glory of God in missions. We worship. Uh, God said he want his glory uh, to reach all the nations that he's seen as a magnificent God, a great God, And then my heart was drawn to Luke 15, which seems weird for a missions conference. Why in the, where's missions in Luke 15? Well, uh, I want to try to unpackage uh, Luke 15. Uh, It's, most of our time is spent talking about a prodigal son that went away and came back. And we'll use this for family life. Uh, We'll use this about our prodigal sons and our prodigal daughters. And uh, uh, don't want to take away any comfort you've ever gotten from that. But I want to uh, tell the stories like Jesus intended them. Is that fair enough? So I think we need to look at this and see uh, the heart of missions from the point of view of God, and so we first of all need to know that there's three stories that are told in chapter 15, three stories. Story about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and about two lost sons. And we seldom talk about the second lost son, and what is astounding in the story, and I doubt that I'll get to the second son. I wanted to do it all today, but I'm not going to rush it. So I'll come back next week if I need to talk and develop the second son. One son is lost as a rebellious, outraged uh, sinner for which the Bay Area is known for. Uh, went to Cal Berkeley and uh, started sharing the dorm, started having all the sex, drugs, and booze and weekend parties and, by the way, picked up a degree along the way. I mean, this Bay Area life. People that really want to rebel love urban areas. Urban areas are the place to really boogie. Uh, in, in the heartland, in, in, in small-town America, uh, there's a lot of math labs, but, uh, you know, to really boogie good, go to a New York City go to San Francisco, go to uh, Seattle, go to L.A., and you can, you can party every night if you can keep up. But then the thing we miss is the boy that is respectable, that never leaves home, that is as far from his father's heart as the boy that left. And that is really the anti-climax of the whole chapter, The chapter, uh, if I had time to show you, in the poetry of it, there's eight stanzas, stanzas that tells the story of the first son, and there's only seven stanzas on the second story because the eighth stanza has never been written. The story should have ended this way. And the elder brother was so delighted that his younger brother came home and that he saw his father once again dance, rejoice, and throw a party, and that they all lived happily ever after. That's how it's supposed to end. But instead, it ends with the older brother never having come into the party, never having uh, angry, mad at his father, wanting to have his friends and have a party. He didn't want to be at the party, and he didn't go to the party. What in the world is that doing in the story? Why does the story leave with that tension? Seven stanzas, the eighth was never written, and we see an old man begging a a son that he's left the rest of the inheritance to. The father gets to spend the money as long as he's alive. But when he's dead, the older boy gets it all. The younger son already spent his third of the inheritance. The older son gets two-thirds. And so we're going to say, why, why did it end that way? What is the point of the stories? Three stories. Two conclude just like they're supposed to. It's like a hallmark story. It ended just right. You think that, uh, you know, somebody like Alfred Hitchcock wrote the last. What happened? No resolution. No resolution. Well, let's first of all examine why the stories were told. There was a distinct reason and a distinct audience that he's telling the stories to, and we miss it. We miss it all the time, so we don't interpret it right. So, follow me. Uh, chapter 15, the occasion. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hearing. Now, let me say something here. When you call somebody a sinner, when everybody's already a sinner, you're saying you're notorious for your sin. You're a notorious sinner. You're known as a killer, a thief. Uh, I mean, you, you're outrageous, uh, immoral. You're breaking all societal norms. And then a tax get- gatherer, uh, Matthew was that. Now, to the Jews, there's no one they could hate any more than a tax collector. Because he sold out his soul to the Gentiles. The Romans needed taxes. And when they hired a Jewish ca- tax collector, the trade went this way. Rome wants, let's say, 70%, $70. The tax collector can have everything above that that he makes. So guess what they did? They doubled the price. They would say, you owe the government $150. Guess who pocketed the other $75? The tax collector. And the Jews knew this. And they also were seen as collaborators with Rome. They're selling out their own people in their hardships. They're over here charging double for the tax debt. They've got the law of Rome behind them. They are a hated, crooked bunch, and the Jews could not stand them. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. To eat with them in that culture was the table of friendship. It wasn't a light meal. It wasn't light in that culture. If you ate with someone, uh, it was, you brought them in. Uh, they, it was friendship. It was welcome. And so, they're observing the style of Jesus' ministry. Jesus, if you are a rabbi sent from God, and if you're the Messiah, as you claim, and if you're this holy man, it does not fit by the audience you attract and the audience you hang out with. It does not make sense. A holy man should only run with holy people. Unholy people would never be drawn to a holy man unless you're like them. And, and that's, that's the tension here. And so Christ sees The religious leaders, the Pharisees, by the way, were the right-wing conservatives of Judaism. The Herodians had sold out the Jews. The Sadducees had given up most of the Old Testament. They only believed in the first five books of Moses. They didn't believe there was a resurrection. Uh, They were in cahoots big time with Roman officials. They were crooked politicians and, and liberals, liberals. The bunch that was Orthodox and the Hasidim and the right-wing conservatives that believed in the resurrection, believed the Scriptures were of God, believed all the Old Testament books, the conservatives of the day were the Pharisees. They were the holy men, the most holy representatives of the nation. And not known for being politicians, but they tithed on their mint box. They observed the Sabbath. They were strict abiding Jews. I think the epitome of Jewish religion at the time. So these guys are no Twinkies. They're the representative of the right wing, righteous segment of Judaism at the time. And they are suspicious. They grumble. They are disturbed by this guy's ministry. It doesn't fit. You can't be from God and attract these kind of people. Jesus begins. He tells a story about a shepherd. And he tells you that this shepherd had a hundred sheep. One comes up missing. What does the shepherd do? Too bad. Let him die. It's late at night. Uh, he got into his mess. He can get out of it. I'm going to sleep. No, no, no. No, no. This shepherd... He gets someone to take care of the 99, often had to hire somebody. He hires somebody to take care of the 99. He doesn't abandon them. He goes out. We don't know all the peril that he encompassed, but it's a search and rescue party. uh, These sheep are always getting lost. He goes and he finds that sheep. And when he found it, He picks it up, puts it on his shoulder. You know what a full-grown sheep average weighing in Palestine? Seventy pounds. And see, when you find a lost sheep, you don't say, you know, like your dog. here, Here's doggy bone. No, 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 no. He has to pick it up because the sheep is still lost, still stubborn, still spooked. And they have to even subdue them when they're rescuing them. And so you see him rescuing him, putting it on his shoulder. Now, come on, carrying 70 pounds, pounds—that you might be an ex-marine, God bless you, but most of us aren't used to carrying 70-pound animals. But he, he, that's what he's doing. And he brings it back, and when he gets back, he calls all of his friends and his neighbors together, and he says, let's have a party. And let's celebrate! I found my sheep. Now, now remember this. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. hear me, because it's going to come up in the elder brother. The party wasn't for the sheep. The party was for the man that found the sheep. The hero is the one who found the sheep, right? So I want all my friends to enter into my joy and to share my joy here that I've been successful in finding something lost and Jesus doesn't leave it there. Oh, that's a nice story. Isn't that warm? Watch. I want you to follow the parable. We usually blow it on parables because we don't pay attention. We make them say what we want them to say. Now notice what he says it's meant to say. Here's the application. Verse 7. Just so I tell you There will be more joy in. Oh, whoa, whoa. So he's moved this all the way to glory over one sinner. Now, any sinners in the narrative? The audience he's been running with are sinners, outrageous sinners, tax collectors. Now, this is God's attitude, Pharisees. God throws a party in heaven every time he sees a sinner repent more than you 99 self-righteous Pharisees who need no repentance. So that would mean in a Sunday service, if we had one notorious sinner on whatever level. THE LEADING DRUG DEALER IN TOWN. I GUESS WE COULD, THE LEADING BANKER IN TOWN THAT'S ROBBING PEOPLE, IF HE'S DOING THAT. BUT WE ALWAYS PICK ON THE STREET GUYS, YOU KNOW, THE rebel, THE WAY OUT. THEY WERE REALLY SINNERS, YOU WERE A NICE ONE. BUT IF THE WORST GUY IN TOWN GOT SAVED TODAY, THERE'D BE MORE PARTYING GOING IN HEAVEN. THAN A BUNCH OF RIGHTEOUS ONES RUNNING TO HOMETOWN BUFFET BECAUSE YOU'RE GOING TO MEET SOME OTHER CHRISTIANS. GOD WOULD, THERE'D BE MORE EXCITEMENT IN HEAVEN OVER ONE NOTORIOUS SINNER COMING TO CHRIST THAN ALL OF US THAT DON'T NEED IT. WELL, I'D COME FORWARD FOR PRAYER, BUT I DON'T NEED IT. Uh, I'M ALREADY SAVED. I'VE GOT MINE. GOOD. But what does God do when someone gets saved? He says it. I mean, right there. He throws a party, just like a shepherd throws a party for his friends. Does that seem a little absurd? That God threw a party the day you accepted Christ? That something in heaven happened? You don't believe this, do you? Because you're so mute. You've never heard this stuff. God gets happy. When sinners come to know, you talk about the the, the source of missions, why we ought to be involved in taking the gospel to people who do not even know Christ, taking the gospel to your neighbor, taking the gospel anywhere instead of us sitting on our hands, bragging on how self-righteous we are and how clean we are, and we don't want to get dirty by any of these dirty old sinners around us, and you're not. You haven't led anyone to Christ for 10 years because you don't get dirty with the culture. Well, guess what? Your God was willing to get dirty, and he left a throne in heaven for the ghetto of this earth, and it got dirty. This is who he loves to be with. Now, he tells another story. A woman loses a coin, and she finds it. Guess what she does? Uh, when, you, when you lose something you found, it doubles its worth. Have you ever seen that? You misplace a watch. Uh, it's kind of fun as you get older. I can't wait till you young people get older. You need both your wife and yourself to find half the stuff. Where's my glasses? Uh, where's the phone? Uh, and she'll say, Where's the money? And I say, I ain't telling you. But where's the glasses? Where's this? Where? You know, that's just kind of, as you get older, it's kind of the fun. It keeps your brain active, honey. So, and when you find it, it's doubled it's double value. And uh, lose, lose a wedding ring and then find it. It doubles its value uh, because you have that feeling of it being lost. Now, this woman loses a coin, very important, probably a part of her dowry. Loses this coin. She searches hard. She finds it. Notice in both instances. Now, the coin, Uh, The owner never takes the blame. The coin didn't just decide to get lost. She lost it, but there's no blame. The sheep, we could blame on the sheep. The coin gets misplaced. She goes and she finds it. And when she's found it, she doesn't do a thing. Just keeps going on life as usual. No, no, no. She throws a party. They have a feast. They celebrate. And she says, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, application, just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, do you get the feeling here, what makes God get happy? Uh, Us running with sinners? No, sinners coming to God. Sinners coming to admit their need. Uh, And you can't have any impact without contact. Jesus is making contact. For I came to seek and save that which was lost. I came not to call the whole and the righteous. I came to seek that which was lost. What is pitiful is when the church quits seeking the lost. Because now we fuss about what kind of music we're singing. That's, That's what's important. Real important. What's really important is the nursery quality because my baby was immaculately conceived and I want the best nursery that can be bought. Is that what the death of Christ is about, is the nursery? It's nice. We just do that to get you. We're trying to set you free. But picky, 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 church. This isn't just right. Oh, shut up. You're a mile from God's heart. When's the last time you fretted that much over your neighbor or that girl on your block that just had her second baby out of wedlock and needs to know Christ, needs to have hope? Who will tell her? Who will tell her? The people who seek the sheep have the joy of the party. The people who seek the lost coin have the joy. Now we come to the third parable, and this parable is Botched in the second son. It, it's concluded in the first prodigal. It has a right conclusion. The second leaves us intention. Let's pick it up. You know the first one so well uh, the father and the rebellious son. And that's the one we, we tell over and over. And I don't want to rush uh, through it, but let's pick it up. There was a son, a man who had two sons. And the younger one of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. This is astounding. In ancient Near East culture, and I have a book I recommend called Poets and Peasants by Kenneth Bailey a Lutheran pastor who lived 40 years among Arabs and Jews in Palestine and has written some of the most classic books on the cultural background of the parables Kenneth Bailey and he he goes into the historical keys to this parable and he said what the boy just did is dad drop dead I don't want you I want my inheritance That really, for such a request, he was liable to the death penalty or at least a caning and a public rebuke because he's in a village which normally was maybe 80 to 100 people. And anything that happened to one family in that village, the whole village would rise up in arms. The father, by ancient Near East tradition, and Bailey were documented, the boy deserved to be disinherited, caned at least, and stoning if they wanted, because Deuteronomy, anyone that dishonors his father should be stoned to death. He should be killed. He's an obstinate, ungrateful, non-loving the father, rebellious punk that needed to be eliminated. And the dad does something that no Jewish man nor Arab man can understand, and the Pharisees are shocked. This is not our culture. What in the world are you telling? He says, the dad did it. He goes out, and in order to give the boy cash, he had to sell the property, uh, one-third of it. uh, And he's a wealthy man, as we read the narrative. He disherits Gets rid of that, gives the two-thirds to the oldest. Now, he gets to enjoy the ranch, and he gets to enjoy the prosperity as long as he's alive. But he's basically, uh, he's disinherited himself. It's been all turned over to these boys. And uh, so he gives it. And this is the shocker. (laughs) Uh, The first is a shock that this could happen, but at least we can kill him. But you don't reward insolence with grace. And that's what he does. I'll do it. Because if you read Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the land was to stay theirs forever. And dad is doing something monumental. It goes on. Not many days later, the son gathered all he had, took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property. Whose property? It's really dad's property that he gave the ungrateful son, but of course, it had become his. But what does he know what to do with an inheritance? Spend it. Reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him in his fields to feed pigs. Did the boy go to a Jewish audience of Gentiles? I mean, he's going away from everything that reminds him of his dad and his religion and his upbringing. I'm out of here. I don't love a thing about where I've grown up. I'm going pagan. I'm throwing off all the values I was taught in my home. I'm throwing off all the religious training. I'm going where the pagans live I am a Jewish boy, have no business being around pigs, but I'm going to sell my life out to them. Many a conservative home has seen their, their girls and their sons throw overboard everything they were ever taught in their home, in their rebellious youth. It's the heartbreak of every parent. And so he, he's just abandoning himself, and he, he's out there with the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But notice, but when he came to himself, he said, Oh, how I miss my father because I love him so much. No, no, no. His need made him think of his father, not his love. You see, both boys only wanted dad to meet their needs and their wants. Neither boy loves the dad. Neither boy wants the dad. Dad is only good to give me what I want. It's a lot of Christian praying I hear. I don't want God. I want what God can give me. Lately, I've prayed a prayer I've never prayed before. It seemed weird when it first came out of my mouth. I I often, when I begin prayer, I, I begin with adoration and thanksgiving. And here lately, I've been just saying, Father, I thank you for you. And it just kind of stunned me when I said it. Wait, wait, wait. I thank you for you. It's a given, all the things you've done for me and given me. But am I thanking you for all the gifts, or am I thanking you for being the giver? Who are you thankful for, what God gives you or for God? What if you had nothing you've got? What if you were homeless? What if you were persecuted as the early church? And they hid out in caves and hid out in animal skins like Hebrews 11 says. And you lost all of your property and you had to go outside the camp because you identified with this crucified Messiah. Would you still have the greatest of all things because you had him? The materialism of the West is nauseating, and it's why Christianity is lifeless and why church is boring and non-passionless because we have transferred our passion to the stuff God gives us away from God himself. If I just have God, I've got everything I need. But we're not really living that because we're materialistic. We're capitalistic we got to have money, cars, and, and if you don't, I won't serve you. If you don't do this, I won't serve you because you're not worth it if you don't give me what I want. You owe me healing. You owe me finances. You owe me this. Oh, 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 oh. God owes you nothing but justice. He doesn't owe you mercy. He doesn't owe you grace. He doesn't owe you any gift. God owes you justice, and you will get justice, but justice will send you to hell. What you really need is his grace and mercy, and only he can give that. Are you thankful for who he is? This God. Get away from gimme, 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 gimme. Start thanking God that there's God. Thank God you've got a father like him. And this, neither one of these boys are thankful for their dad. Their whole relation is based on what dad can do for them. And in the boy's hunger, when his stomach is gnawing, and he's down here with the grunting pigs and... Uh, you know, pods and, and the garbage of a hog pen. Wow, you know, and, and get this, he doesn't really think of his dad as much as his dad's hired servants. He, he thinks in his mind, I can never be a son again. I, I'm disinherited. He, he could never do this and save face in an ancient Near East village. Can't do that. That's out. He at least put that together. So he says, I'll go for the second best thing. I like to be one of my dad's hired servants. Notice verse 17. How many of my father's hired, see there, servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, you know, when you're trying to get back, you, you repeat your speech. I'm going to swoon and just sweep him. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Amen. You are not, you jerk. You rebel. You're disrespectful. You've, you've shamed your father in a shame culture. You've done the utmost shame. You've wished him dead. Said, well, I'm not worthy to be called your Son, but treat me as one of your hired servants. And a hired servant was not a slave. They owned their own. They had their own home. Uh, they came daily to the ranch, to the place. They worked the property. They worked for wages, but they retained their independence of the owner. So the, it, 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 uh, it's a misthos is the Greek word, a hired hand. And, and so. Maybe my dad will employ me. He could never treat me like a son again. But if I could become an employee, he's so good to his employees. uh, Maybe maybe this was going in his mind. I can work and maybe start making payments on the inheritance I squandered. He doesn't say that, but that could have been working. Or he could have just thought, I could survive on the kind of wages my dad pays his servants. Uh, Just to be in my dad's employee, I've got a future. I'll never be back with the hogs again. So this dad uh, is, is a noble man. Even in the eyes of a rebellious son, my dad is better to hire servants than most. If I could be his employee... That's all I, I'm, I'm going back for. I'm not going back to be a son. That's over. And so, once again, we watch the surprise of grace. He makes his speech, treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a time way off, his father saw him and said, I'm going to give him the whipping of his life. What does yours say? And felt what? Where's the anger? And ran and embraced him. And kissed him. If I'd given her enough time, I'm having press sing next week. Hopefully, the day God ran, she sang that song for me when we we're at the theater, and it's right off of this verse. Now, now, come on. Let me ask you, parents. You're you're, you're an older man. Who knows what he is to have these sons? I put him in his. 50s, maybe 60s, and how do you see somebody a long ways off? You'd be watching TV, I know. (laughs) They didn't have TV. A village, the streets were no wider than 7 to 8 feet, very small. Palestinian villages. I mean, you got to see it. I mean, this had to be a focused mind. I'm looking. I know how that boy walks. Uh, I raised him. In my old vision, I might have a cataract, but they're not so bad I can't see a son coming home. And he's looking. It's an amazing. We don't know how many feet away he was. And and as he sees him, contrary to everything the narrative and the Pharisees expected, they expect, do the law, get revenge, stoning. He shamed you in the village. We can't tolerate delinquents. Don't show tough love. Don't. Don't endorse this wicked behavior. Our whole village, every young person in it might get to acting like this boy. You've got to eliminate the rebel immediately. But the father did something that the narrative is supposed to make you gasp. He felt compassion. And he did something in the culture, in near ancient Near East culture. No man over 30 was to run in public kind of interesting when I was in India. You know what you can't do in India? You cannot show a leg. You see these gals, these saris my daughters are wearing. Uh, uh, Indian women don't show the leg. I had to go to Singapore to see a human leg again. <laughs> Carolyn had to wear clothes that covered her legs. You just can't show the legs. Dress co- Well, in this culture, men were not to show their legs. Neither were they to run in public. That was for youth. You were not to give up the dignity of adulthood. So it was forbidden. And yet, once again in the narrative, he breaks all ancient Near East tradition. He he breaks all protocol. Why in the world are you running? Hear me. Hear me. He's not only coming back to his father's house, he's coming back to the village that he violated. And whoever gets to him first can either stone him, beat him, slap him, because the village elders can stand up for the dishonor done to the father as a village community. And if they got to him first, who knows what will happen to the boy? So the old man, he knows this. He said, I've got to outrun anybody that wants to hurt him. And so when he gets there, He falls on his neck, and in the uh, Greek, it's a present tense kiss. I think the way to translate it, he smothered him with kisses. And the last place the boy's been is where? No old spice on this boy, it's old pig husk. Old pigs is what he was wearing. Animal waste, the garbage of a Gentile hog farm. That's what this boy had on him. i never forget Jim Symbol of saying, he was praying God would save, and he had one drunk man down in Brooklyn where their church is, that they had a drunk man that often uh, begged for money and was always seen next to Brooklyn Tab. And uh, he was a mess. Uh, oftentimes urinated on himself or had thrown up, uh, always bad. And they always prayed, God save this man. And he said, one Sunday morning, who should come down the middle aisle when they made the invitation but this man? And uh, he came, and, and it was one of those mornings, the pastor would love to say, would one of you counselors please handle this man? <laughs> said, you could smell him coming. Hair matted closed soiled, and he came right to Jim as Jim buried his head into the man's matted head with all the odors of the street and the odors of not having a shower for weeks he said he saw one of the dirtiest men in Brooklyn come into the arms of God in one service and he said I've been praying I didn't know they'd have to be this bad but you finally brought him He finally brought him. God's asking us to embrace a dirty world, not to be dirtied, but that we could show him the way home and show him a father that's not offended that you've been sleeping with the hogs. He's the kind of God that accepts you even when you smell like a hog, even when you've been acting like one. This is amazing. The Pharisees, they're doing everything they can. They're tithing on everything. They're strict on every rule. They're full of religion, 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 and their religion is a 1,000 miles from God's heart. And they were going to hell as much as the rebellious son. It's terrible to be in the church and be respectable and still be lost. And still not have the heart of God. So, the father has mercy on him, and uh, he embraces him. He smothers him with kisses, and the son says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Amen. I'm sure all the Pharisees say, amen. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe. Guess who owned the best robe? It's dad's robe. Put it on him and put a ring on his hand. Oh, this would give you a migraine headache. This is like giving back the visa card. <laughs> the ring was you could do family business. That's what they signed their documents with. You put it in the wax. they had the family ring. That was on dad's account. He's reinstating him with financial son privileges immediately put shoes on his feet, slaves often went shoeless. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. A fattened calf could feed a hundred people. So the village must have been about a hundred people. And it was only eaten on great occasions. They did not eat meat in Palestine. That was a delicacy. Mainly a matzah, corn, you know, you like your Tortillas, when you're in India in these places, uh, they live on this wheat bread, bread, bread everywhere, or rice, of course. But they didn't, li- they didn't have meat. No, no, very seldom. So when you kill a calf, you, you are a man of means and you're sparing nothing. But guess who the calf belonged to ultimately? The elder brother. You're dipping into my inheritance to feed my rebellious brother. Dad has access to any of it, but when his older brother says, "Why well, you've never even killed a goat for me, and now you've killed a calf for him?" Man, you're eliminating the family inheritance that's in my name. Don't be wasting the assets on a rebel. He's upset. He's running the figures on how much the calf costs. But his dad says, you've got to celebrate. For this was my son who was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate, and it ought to end right there. Right there. Go home. Let's see. Yeah, let's go home. We'll pick up next week and tell you the sad conclusion. God bless you. You go.